Well, hello, this is Ted Johnson with the Fish on Ted podcast, where we talk about the business of hunting and fishing. Well, hello, this is Ted Johnson with the Fish on Ted podcast. And I want to thank everybody for joining us again today. We've got a really interesting interview coming up. In fact, um, I don't know of any other podcast or radio show out there that has had three, count them three, guides from Kenai, from the Kenai in Alaska on a podcast at any one time. And so this is going to be really interesting. We have on the line with us Brian Kinsey of Kinsey Guide Service. We have Felix Sturm of Hook, Line, and Landum Fishing. And then we've got little Brian Kinsey. Hey, little Brian, how are you, man? Good, good. Good. And of course, he's with Kinsey Guide Service also. So without stealing any thunder, um, Felix, why don't you uh, introduce yourself and, and uh, uh, tell us a little bit about how in the world you got to the Kenai and uh, how, how uh, you, you became a guide? Well, uh, it all started many years ago. My mom had a dream of coming to Alaska. So we were living down in Wyoming in uh, <clears throat> 1992, and she made the decision that we were moving to Alaska. So we first touched base in Seward, Alaska in 1993, and we lived there for a summer. And uh, I'd always loved fishing, but I had never experienced anything like salmon fishing. And while the salmon fishing in Seward, Alaska was kind of crude compared to what I'm used to now. Um, I instantly fell in love with salmon fishing and that basically started everything. Um, we moved to Kenai that following winter of 93. And then I got my first experiences on the Kenai river in 94. Um, and I just fished throughout my teens around here. Um, I didn't really ever think that I was going to be a guide. And then I actually, uh, meet some guys and uh from there after he took me out on the boat a few times i was dead set on that's what i wanted to do and it was you know 2010 so uh after after that i i drift boat and uh started my guy service and it started off slow but um it's grown uh, several years so that's basically, you know, that's what got me into guiding is I, I came to the Kenai, saw the fishing opportunities that are here, um, how amazing it can be and how, how awesome it is to show other people these experiences. Um, other people that have never seen a fishery like this before when it's good um, or just we have here, so. Well, very good, very good. Brian, uh, why don't you uh, introduce you uh, yourself and little Brian and Tell us a little bit about how you backed yourself into the guide business. Yeah, you got it. I'll, uh, rather than going way back to me, to, to sharing how old I really am and telling you how, how far back to go, I'll start with uh, Alaska. Okay. Uh, my, what, what was really great for me is that I have three boys all interested in guiding, and two of them are already guides, and one of them's 21, and I think Brian's either, little Brian's either 24 or 25. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was I went up to guide Alaska and took the family up and put uh, my middle boy on a uh, halibut boat as a deckhand and took the whole family up there to work and, as I was guiding. And I didn't take little Brian with me. He's my oldest boy. Uh, instead, I had him at 18 years old guiding uh, for my business in Northern California, fly fishing, uh, yeah. while we all went up. Well... There was a the outfitter I was working for at an Anil Chick. Uh, they were booking up so much they they needed another guide, and I had already been on the river and saw quite a few pretty rough hacks out there. And I was just thinking, oh my gosh, my son will smoke half these guys out here. And uh, so I went back and I said, uh, if you guys need another guide, you need to get my son up here and uh they said we're okay we're we're interested and i said okay I'll, you also need to pay for a flight up here right and so they did and uh they flew him up and uh that's kind of where it all started uh i think his first week he already had a, a banner week and uh you know outfished me and showed me up and 
he runs a real tight line on his 20-foot willy boat and scullies real well where I struggle and it kind of went from there. Mm-hmm. And I think uh, Felix kind of undersells himself a little bit there on his intro because um, I immediately was watching, uh, you know, who who's the stars out there and right. who are the hacks. And uh, I saw this skinny kid up in front of me that you could hear coming around corners and going down corners and coming down scenes from, I don't know, 500 yards away. I'd go, oh, my God, here here comes that that Felix guy again. I'm, I forget his boat number, but I had memorized his boat number. Right. Three, four, and time, every, what was it? Three four three. Three four three, and and he would he would come around. He would he would go by me. He wouldn't uh, downhole me, but he'd get up there at a respectable distance. He would catch fish in front of me, catch fish behind me. And uh, I think a few times I gave him those big puppy dog eyes. And uh, I remember one time where he uh, he threw me some of his row, probably feeling a little sorry for me. Right. And uh, and then I watched him chastise uh, uh, unethical fishers from shore. I watched him chastise unethical guides uh, and, and appropriate mm-hmm. chastisement. You know what I'm saying? He didn't like mm-hmm. uh, embarrass them or humiliate them. And then right. on whenever he during the takeouts, whenever Felix would take out, nobody else wanted to take out because you would you know there'd be a bunch of fish coming out of his boat, and then right. you'd be pulling up, taking out with your clients with you know half as much fish and half the size. So I sure. watched him and watched him and watched them built rapport with him, and uh, you know I said you know what if my son's going to be up here. This guy's a straight shooter. He's honest. Loyalty means everything to him. Honesty mm-hmm. means everything to him. But I also noticed he didn't have a lot of friends out there either. Um, and, you know, there's that old school saying, it's lonely at the top. And when sure. you're at the top and you're catching all the fish, not too many people like you. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I kind of just befriended him, built rapport with him. I think I shocked him a few times going by him just saying hi and commending him and recognizing him and and pretty soon uh, I don't even know if we became friends it was it was just you know I was I think I was more of like a father figure out there on the river right I think I reached out to him and I said hey why don't you mentor my boy for me or help my boy out and uh next thing I know he's mentoring my son and uh my son was already had a good start and then when you put uh Felix Sturm on top of him Man, my I just started seeing my boy excel and excel, and now they've been together. I don't know. They're, they're buddies out there on the river two, three, four years now. I don't know how long it's been, maybe five. And uh, so I want to thank Felix and Hook, Line, and Landham. And even though he's a competitor of ours, uh, I mean, there's a he's he's probably already forgot more about salmon fishing and catching salmon. Uh, that I know or or will learn in the future. So I want to just publicly, you know, thank him as we get going here. Wow, that's awesome, man. That that is awesome. Yeah, I really appreciate that, Brian. Nothing but love from this direction. <laughs> Terrific. Well, hey guys, you know, one of the things that that um, people have misconceptions on about fishing the peninsula is that there's only the Kenai River. But but that isn't correct, is it? I mean, there's lots of other waters that you uh, that that you'll fish other than the Kenai. Is that right? Yeah, that's that's totally correct. Uh, there's a lot of small bodies of water that don't get the recognition the Kenai does, based generally on that world record king salmon that was caught out of the Kenai, um, which is Sulaf River is is usually overlooked significantly, and it's it's just you know a 20 minute drive from the Kenai they're they're so close to each other it's they're they're right next door to each other and the Kisilaf gets overlooked quite a bit and then there's other fishing opportunities uh especially for bank anglers um the Anchor River the Nilchik Deep Creek all offer openings where generally you're allowed to do some kind of king salmon fishing um they also have silver salmon fishing and then later in the fall um a lot, especially Deep Creek and the Anchor are well known for steelhead fishing um, mm-hmm. So there's a lot of other opportunities besides just the Kenai over here on the Kenai Peninsula. Yeah. Now, now in re- in regards to pressure on the rivers, um, you know, Kenai seems to be the uh, 
it seems like the premier in people's eyes of the river that they want to go fish. But is there as much pressure on the other rivers as there is on the Kenai? Uh, I'd say no, there isn't actually. The Kenai, for sure, is the Banner River around here, and it's the most publicized. So generally, it's the most booked up. I think it's up to right around 700 registered guides now. So that that doesn't mean at any given time you're going to find 700 boats out there. But generally, you know, on any given day, king salmon fishing the lower Kenai, you know, there's going to be 200 to 300 boats out there in July. Mm -hmm. And and that's an all-day event from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. That's kind of what's going on. Whereas, like, on the Kasilov, a real busy day, you know, 60 boats is pretty busy over there. Now, now, how big is the Kasilov compared to the Kenai? in regards to like flow and that sort of thing? So the Kenai generally moves faster. It's a much longer river. Um, and so it's glacier fed like the Kasilov, but it actually has two lakes that filter it. So everything starts up at Kenai Lake, which has all kinds of, you know, creeks and things running into it that feed it and it's glacier fed. And so then the Kenai runs down into what's called the upper Kenai river and, or it actually, you know, starts to be river. Um, and then it flows into this area called the canyon, and that's like upper Skelac Lake. So it dumps into this lake, and then on the other end of the lake is where the river starts again, and that's where the middle Kenai starts, and the middle river drifts down, and it's up, it's in Sterling, and it goes all the way to Kenai. So through mm-hmm. Soldatna and through Kenai to where it outlets to the, into Cook, and dumps into Cook Inlet. Um, Whereas the Kasilov River, the whole thing, I think, is less than 30 miles long. It starts at Tustamina. There's about a 14-mile a stretch from Tustamina down to the bridge where you're legally allowed to start king fishing. Everything above that is spawning habitat for the king salmon and isn't open for any catch or release or catch and retention up there at all. You're, once they make it past that bridge, you're, you're just supposed to leave them alone and not mess with them. So just generally the area that we're fishing below the bridge to where we stop fishing and head down to the takeout is about five miles long six miles long oh wow short run huh so yeah so and when we're when i say that keep in mind from the bridge down to the ocean is probably seven or eight miles so we're just when we take out we're literally like a mile mile and a half from the ocean and when we're fishing we're we're generally fishing all tide water and tide fish the first couple of holes that we start fishing on the Kasila, where everyone starts off, is uh, generally not tidally affected, but everything below that, I mean, is tidally affected. So mm-hmm. we're fishing tide water all the time. Generally, most of the fish are fresh, brand new sea lice, chromers from the ocean. Wow. Wow. Now, now in, in regards to the types of fishing that you do on the Kilaf compared to the Kenai, what, what are the differences? Okay, so generally, I don't do a lot of fly fishing on the Kasila. Um, sometimes, for just for personal satisfaction, I'll go out there and steelhead fish with a fly rod. But the the guiding aspect of the Kasila, generally, we are we're running gear out there for salmon. And so, when I say gear, keep in mind we're there, we're not generally doing a lot of catch and release. At least my business doesn't. Um, we're, we're out there to retain fish and, and keep fish for the freezer. So we're using, you know, when baits open, we're using double hook setups. We're using treble hooks, bait. Um, and when we catch those fish, the intention, like I said, is to kill them. Now, mm-hmm. when they put the restrictions on us for catch and release, and, and, and for instance, this year, we're only allowed to keep hatchery fish. They put restrictions on us to not only slow us down from catching fish, but to do the least amount of damage to the fish that we do catch in the event that it's a wild fish and we have to let it go. For instance, we're only allowed to use one hook. We're not allowed to use any bait or scent of any kind, which makes it much harder in glacier water to catch these salmon. Um, So, and then as the season progresses, so king salmon is basically all done out of the drift boat. The rods are in holders, and then occasionally, you know, depending on the guide, there's different programs and different ways to approach catching these kings. You can sometimes do things like back bouncing, which involves having the rod actually in your hand, and you're manipulating the gear off the bottom, trying to get a bite. But generally, most of us keep the rods in the holder, and we're moving around a lot. Um, We're not just sitting on anchor. 
You got mm-hmm. your guys that do that too, but it's not, it, you know, in tide water that can be effective, but otherwise we're moving around in the boat with the lines out all day, rowing back up to the top of the hole and doing it again, especially if you get bit over and over and over. Now, mm-hmm. as we get out of season and get into silver season, things slow down a little bit as far as, as far as the pressure goes. Um, there's a lot more silvers and there's a lot of different ways to catch them. We do back bouncing. We do back trolling. We do bobber and eggs. There's a lot of different ways to catch the silver salmon. Um, mm-hmm. And that, those are the main two things that I offer on the Kasilop. But then we go over to the Kenai. That's when we get into the fly fishing for trout, fly fishing for the steelhead. Um, and a lot of guys, you know, there's some guys that just do that all year round when it's right. open. They, they do nothing but the trout year round in the upper river and in the middle river. Mm-hmm. And, and that trout... Let me jump in here real quick. Uh, just yeah. for your listeners, to, let me just paint a picture uh, real quick, backing up just a little bit uh, to the Casiloft. Let's talk a little bit about glacier-fed water and why you need a guide like uh, Felix Sturm or little Brian Kinsey. And there is, and we can name a few of the other guys just to give them a, a little plug because there's some fantastic guys out there. Sure. Um, but the need a fantastic guide out there is glacier-fed water. I mean, basically, you it looks beautiful and green and clear, and all our clients are like, "Oh, that is so pristine and all that." But literally, you put your arm in the water, and at about 16 inches, your hand disappears. So. Uh, it, it's, it's brackish and it's glacier fed. And so when you do not, when you have a closure on bait on, on Kasilov or Kenai, your bite ratio goes way down, way down. Some of us, it goes from a, a, a 90% to a 10 or 15%. Felix wow. can speak to his own percentages there, but it gets really tough. And then your percentages go up based on not only the gear you're using or selecting to use, but how you run it, because basically you're shifting from scent, which the rumor is, you know, the salmonid or especially king salmon will smell parts per billion. Right. And now you can't use scent and you can't use row. So you're really focused on the vibration or the lateral line of that salmon. So I'll just show my weakness here a little bit i cannot scully a, a straight line like little brian and felix can and that becomes so much more important when you do not have bait and you're fishing in glacier water mm-hmm. and you need to focus on that lateral line and you use these particular crankbaits I, I know felix favorite and brian's favorite is quick fish Mm-hmm. And so you've got to run and scully a tight line and you've got to be strong and you've got to be back trolling all day for from six to nine hours in order to hopefully get, you know, your hookups for your clients in that boat. With right. Roe, it's a lot more forgiving or wrapping sardine. It's a lot, lot much more forgiving for a guy like me that, that looks like a DUI coming down the river sometimes. <laughs> So, um, I just wanted to paint the picture for uh, for your listeners as the difference between uh, bait and no bait and why you have to really do a little research on who the guys are out there that really know how to run their sticks. Right, right. In- interesting. And and so you were saying, I mean, if you put your your hand in the water, it disappears at 16 inches. And so... I mean, you're right. You, you, uh, if you don't have any scent or you don't have any bait on, that that really changes the game, doesn't it? One hundred percent. Yep. Wow. Wow. Definitely. So definitely you- just to touch base on what Brian had said there. Yeah, he he's a hundred percent right. I didn't really get into that, but man, it is so important to know exactly where the fish are when you have no bait or scent because like you said any artificial that you're using with no visibility no scent no way to draw them to your presentation you basically have to know exactly where you think those fish are in the hole and you have to line up with that fish perfectly the the lure or the spinning glow whatever you're choosing as your artificial has to get generally within 
you know, eight inches to a foot of that fish's face to get any kind of a reaction out of them. They're not going to move over for you. If anything, you know, when they come in the river, they're not feeding. So they're more liable to move away from your presentation and just ignore it and try to get away from it if it's agitating them than they are to bite it. Your presentation at that point with no bait has to be so perfect. Your speed drifting down the river has to be perfect. Everything has to be perfect for that fish to commit to biting that piece of plastic and hanging on long enough to get hooked with a single hook. So wow. he's right. There's a lot, there's a lot to it when you're, when you're fishing that type of water under those circumstances, it, it increases everything, the difficulty a hundredfold. So, and when so you, when you're yeah. talking about speed, you're talking, you'll see these, you'll see us guides looking at the shore constantly because one is we want to run a straight seam on where we, we know the fish are. Mm -hmm. Two is we don't want to go down too slow or too fast. Too slow is better than too fast. Uh, my boy, little Brian's real slow and he, I, it works really, really well for him. I just don't have the strength to do what he does, but you're talking probably what would you say, Felix, dot zero, 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 one mile per hour, you know, as you're going down. So literally you just inch like foot, you're like stopped for like maybe three, four seconds. And then you let, you, you let go just for a foot and then three, four, five seconds. And then you let go for a foot. I mean, that's the best way I can describe it. So you've got to have a strong guide. You have to have a nice boat that's set up right. You have to have a guide that knows how to scully run the seams and, and right. work the stick. You've got to have a guide that knows the river, knows where the holes are. That's one of the thing, nice things about having Felix out there this time of year because the other thing I was going to say is you can, right now, you can walk across the Kisilov. But in August, oh, really? oh, wow. you'll, die. you'll die. Yeah, right now, mm -hmm. I mean, you can walk across yeah. Um, glacier fed, remember, as you, you were talking about the flows, we really don't measure CSS there as much as we do in the lower 48 or the, the northwest coast because right. you're dealing with snow runoff. And Got so, it. you know, May is when it kind of starts. But man, by August, it's, it's deep and screaming and trees are coming down the river sometimes. Oh, wow. So, as the as the the season goes on, you know you're you're working a little. Well, I guess it could go both ways, but I feel myself working a little harder, probably because I'm I'm carrying heavy anchors and all that kind of stuff. So, mm -hmm. and so by July, Brian, we're all sweating. By July, brother, we are all sweating out there. I'll bet. I'll bet. So, so here's a question for you. I mean, being guides, and and you got somebody that that's booked a trip with you and they 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 meet you at the put-in wherever that is and the guy reaches in the back of his car and he grabs that fiberglass rod with the metal eyelets and the spinning reel with the bale that's that's bent and he goes i want to use this this is my lucky rod what do you do i mean if, if, if this is so precise i mean how, how do you how do you get around that okay so i've actually had this happen to me on more than one occasion Mm -hmm. And basically, like you said, and, and there's been all kinds of rods, like people even want to bring their fly rods out to try. And I have to break it to them as gently as possible that that I would hate to see that rod turn into a six piece. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you did manage to hook into a salmon. And then I explained them, you know, when they bring a fly rod, how, how hard and how unlikely it will be what we're doing for them to hook a fit you know one of these fish on a fly and even if they did for them to be able to land it even with us being in the boat so right. um really after showing them my gear like hey you know I, I see what you got here now look at what we're actually what what i use every day and once they see the gear you know we use g loomis rods anywhere from mm -hmm. you know 30 to 10 to 40 pound with uh big shimano takoda 500s or 600 reels so generally people that's not their lucky rod and, and they understand quite quickly okay we're if we're talking big fish here this rod's not going to handle it right right couple yeah, other things a couple other things we don't want their stinky stuff on our boats Ooh. um that's one uh two is probably the 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 biggest point to make here is um when we are booking 
Now, Felix runs his own outfitter up there, so it's up to him to make sure that his clients understand what they're going to be doing before they get on the boat. So if a guy wants to bring a, a uh, you know, a bamboo or a fiberglass uh, rod with a spinning reel, then I would probably say, well, let's, let, well, you can bring that out during silver season, but not right. uh, during king. So it's up, to, hopefully, to the booking agents to make sure that the people understand that we provide the gear. We're very sensitive about our gear. Um, the other good guides out there don't hesitate to professionally uh, take control and lead, mm-hmm. uh, and and you know, con- and even assert themselves with these clients because. A lot of these clients do, you know, hey, I paid good money. Hey, you got to do this. You got to do that. Well, no, it's not actually like that. Mm-hmm. You know, you paid good money for me to take you on a king trip on my boat. So you're gonna, we're going to follow my direction, my lead. We're going to keep you safe. We're going to keep this. You've got three other people on this boat that are equally as important. And I don't, you know, su- I don't know that gear. I don't support that gear. I don't know what's been on that line. I don't know if you've been chewing tobacco and spitting on your reel. You know, I don't know if you've been eating bananas and rubbing your line. I don't know what you've been doing. So we're going to use my clean lemon joy scrub gear uh, for you to, you and the other three on this boat to have the best chance of being successful. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because the name of that game isn't, is, is, is getting fish in the boat, especially when you're, when you're uh, going after, um, you know, you know, fish you're going to keep. I mean, that, that's how you're compensated and that's how you're looked at, you know, not only for those well, people, but, but for people they may talk yeah. to. Yes. I mean, people watch National Geographic and then they think that as soon as they get out there, they're going to be able to run across the river on the backs of kings. Yes. And it's, it is not, I mean, it is, uh, it is very, very tough to... I mean, to, to fill your boat and limit people out, it is extremely tough. Now, if they want to book a, a tour guide, they're certainly welcome to contact me at www.kinsuguideservice.com, and I'll gladly tour them down the Kenai the or the Kasilaf. But if they want to catch fish, they got to use our gear and follow our leads uh, on right. the boat. Right, right. Well, very good. So, so you know – you're, you're sitting on the Kenai with 300 boats around you and everybody's fishing the same slots. I mean, how, how you know, how are you keeping everybody in line if you may, so that uh, everybody has the right chance to, to catch a fish and you know, what, what are the, the unwritten um, professional ethics on the water between guides at that point? Little bride, did your phone die or are you on? Cause you can speak to that. I apologize, guys. I got disconnected. I'm back. Is that oh, Felix or Little Brian? Felix. Yeah, I'm here too. Okay. I, I'm. I'm. Um, yeah, my phone's working for now, so okay. I might get okay. cut out. Yeah, on the Kenai, um, a lot of boats. I personally, you know, being a younger guy out there, I'm real respectful. I won't. I'll be the first guy, you know, to pull away at a couple boat distance away and say, "Hey, you mind if I make a pass here?" or you know, I use my, uh, I, I'm not afraid to talk to nobody uh-huh. and, uh, and I'm super respectful. So before you go out there and, you know, think you can run every hole or get in front of anybody or do what you want, you're, uh, you're going to get weights thrown at your boat and you're going to get into fist fights if, uh, if you're not respectful out there. So I don't know. Yeah. I just, I tell anyone out there that's doing that, you just be respectful and kind of, it's not hard to watch the other guys and watch how they do things and, you know, Basically, you just take your turn. You get in line mm-hmm. and take that, you know, you're running the motor. So um, you just make your pass and you just stay good, you know, I'd say 50 yards, you know, away from another guy. Because, you know, if you get a nice hot king on, title king, um, in a couple seconds, he could have you at two, 300 feet um, mm-hmm. still pill line and be in other boat or other lines. or um, So you want that distance. You don't want to be on top of people. Um but it's not too hard. It's a really big river. Um, and there's definitely space, you know, throughout the river. And, you know, if one spot has 15, 20 boats, I'm not going to fish that spot. There's too many lines. I'm going to look for uh, a different spot to fish and to get my lines wet. Sure. 
Well, I, I know a lot of people think about, you know, they, they see the pictures of the Kenai and the pristine waters and, and the forest. And, and, and sometimes it's more like a parade, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, so it, 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 a lot of a lot of the misconceptions too also are when they when they say the Kenai or they always like to pan over to the Russian River with the 300 people lined up shoulder to shoulder sockeye fishing. Yeah, and uh, it's you know especially later on in the season it's it's not as easy to do that on the majority of the Kenai. So most of your Brian again can speak and Felix more to this than most of those guys are in boats. And to direct answer your question, I think Brian nailed it, which is, you know, just be respectful. And the and I would say the majority of the guides out there are pretty respectful. Sometimes you get the private fishing boats that that don't like guides, um, and they'll they'll push you a little bit more, get a little tighter to you, or or whatever. But the same thing the the, the the good guides they're very respectful and they'll let you buy they'll even let you have their spot because they've mm -hmm. got confidence they know they're good and there's no worries the guides or the private parties that are yelling at you or shouting at you that is a red flag that they're having a bad day because they can't catch fish and they don't know what the hell they're doing yeah good point so that's that's generally what happens. You, you'll have a guy come down and he's just, you know, uh, low holing you, which means bringing your boat around you and dropping right in front of you. And then he's yelling at you and he's telling his clients, oh, that guy must be sneaking row on and then we're not supposed to have bait. And he's, you know, making all these excuses to his clients and he's all over the river and and uh, and he's shouting at you. And, you know, and, the, and he's even got his clients fired up. So they're shouting at you. That's a sign of a of a of a guide that's struggling, and it's actually kind of sad. I when I see that happen, and I kind of I kind of feel bad for him. I think yeah. my my boy probably wants to nod him upside the head. I just simply say you must be having a bad day, and I move on to the next spot. <laughs> yeah, that is the best yeah. way to resolve that type of situation. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. And, I don't know. And being a young guy out there, like I said, I'm super respectful, guys. You gotta, you know, I just say something like that and I move on to the next spot. There's plenty of spots that I've caught fish on the Kenai too already. Um, you know, if, they're, if they want that spot that bad, I'll move to the next spot. Sure. So in the, the cool thing, about, go ahead. The cool thing about the Kenai and the Kasilov River, uh, while some spots are better than others, the cool thing about both rivers is the fish are all moving upstream. So they're not just hanging out, living here or there. They're all moving upstream generally to get somewhere. So you're, you're fishing their interception paths and there's always other places to intercept them. Um, conflict can easily be resolved by just moving away or, you know, and if you're already there, you're already there. The other person has to keep moving. That's just how it goes. Right. Now we were talking earlier before we started the the, the podcast that uh, at least on the Kenai uh, there's a lot of catch and release uh, 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 times just because it's it's a wild fish hat or a, a river versus a hatchery based or or a planted uh, a river when it, when when you fish uh, clients on the Kenai are you are you teaching them how to catch and release properly? Well, I know for me, like I said, for me personally, I don't fish the Kenai for Kings. And, and, you know, like I said, because there's not as many fish and it's such a unique genetic strain over there that I, you know, my clients want to kill fish. So I, I don't bring them over there at all. I don't, I don't have ran zero guided trips for King salmon on the Kenai river period. Um, I fished over there myself personally for Kings, but yeah. so on the casino, when we're, when we're, you know, having to do catch and release, no retention, um, mm -hmm. definitely I'm very, you know, most people who catch these fish, they've never caught a fish this big before in freshwater, or if they've even King salmon fish before, they've never caught one this big. So they definitely want a picture. Now, right. this is where things get tricky because, you know, they're paying to catch this fish and hopefully get a picture if you're not allowed to retain it. That's just generally accepted as, you know, that's what we're doing. They're trying to get a picture and have this experience of catching this fish. 
Now, where things get tricky is the law states here, and, and I totally 100% agree with this, that you're not allowed to remove a king salmon that's being released out of the water. And there's several reasons for this. I could go on and on all day, but I'm just going to break it down real swift for you. Number one, you know, after an exhausting fight, a 30-plus pound fish that's coming in to spawn and die has no way of re-energizing re itself, will never eat again. When you catch that fish, you know, it's, it's like fighting a huge battle for that thing. You're, you, you know, it's hard for you to reel it in, but it's 100 times harder on that fish. There's a lot of stress built up. Um, that, that fish is under a lot of pressure. So when you bring it in and then you net it, depending on what happens in your interaction with that fish should be as quick and as easy and as less stressful on that fish as possible. Um, getting pictures, you got to keep them in the water. And that's what, what fishing game wants you to do. But you see guys breaking that rule continuously and it's very frustrating. And I understand why, because the clients put pressure on you or say, you know, your guide's holding the tail of the fish and the client's down there by the head and their people are in the boat taking these pictures, well, up comes the head out of the water, and it might just be for a second, but sometimes seconds lead to more seconds, and, and some people, you know, private boats especially are guilty of this, and I don't want to single them out, but people that aren't with a guide, you see them having these fish in the net and off on the bank or something for five minutes, and that's a long time to have a fish, you know, barely breathing, struggling for air, um, and, and in that type of situation, it's like, what's the likelihood of that fish surviving the interaction? So catch and release just got blown up right there. I mean, there was no point right. of catch and release that fish because what you actually have done is catch and kill that fish. And then you're dumping it back in the river. It's not going to spawn. And, and if we're lucky, you know, the seagulls will enjoy it. Mm -hmm. Um, and that, that totally, you know, is against everything I believe that catch and release is supposed to be about. So, you know. I tell my clients when we get one of these fish, okay, let's get over quickly to the shore. And, I, and one of the biggest thing is as soon as I net this fish, I use a rubber net, number one. When we know we're catching and releasing these things, rubber mesh net is mandatory for me. It's just if you're a guide, you should have one. If you know you're releasing fish, you should have one. There's tons of studies done out there about mesh nets and what they do to the slime coat and the scales on the fish. And, uh -huh. and these fish got enough. They, honestly, you got enough shit going on. They don't need any extra pressure or hurt put on them. They've already right. got a hook in their mouth and they're being drugged ashore for a photo op and smiles, you know, and nothing about it is pleasant for them. So when mm -hmm. I get them over to shore, you know, we get them in the net and I'm like, keep that fish in the water, keep the fish in the water. We get over to shore as quickly as possible and I'm quick to drop the anchor, secure the boat, and immediately I want the net and I get the fish in the water and I start trying to revive it help the client out of the boat and I explain so this fish we you know it's mandatory that we try to help this thing survive we're using a single hook we get the hook out of the fish I explain to them how to cradle the fish not to take the fish out of the water and one line I like to use uh, is think of the, the salmon as a butterfly if you knock the dust off a butterfly's wings it's not going to fly away and it's going to die so if mm -hmm. we harass it too much or we expose it to air too much and don't let it breathe or it gets too much silt mud whatever and it's gills good chance this thing we're, we're going to kill it and it's most people when you put it to them like that they're super understanding um and you know myself i'm really good with photographs i've gotten really good over the years of taking pictures for people while they hold their fish in the water and so it's right. never really been a problem but i constantly see you know on the internet and, and buddies sending pictures back and forth in these fish that are going to be released. Some of them are just blatantly like two or three feet out of the water, you know, and, and mm -hmm. all these different goals and they're holding on to this fish for a couple minutes, taking different pictures on different phones. And, you know, when you're doing that, you're, you're, you're hurting yourself if you're a guide because you're, that fish is going to die and that's bad for the fishery all over. And, right. uh, and the more times you do that, you know what I mean? It adds up. Say if you only even do it to one fish a day for a month straight, that's 30 fish that you killed. Yeah, that, that adds up. Now, now what, what about the, you know, uh, when, when you, when you get a client that's saying, well, you know, what, what is this weigh? Right. I mean, you're going to release it. Well, you know, let's weigh it. Well, you can't do that without taking it out of the water. I've got the, a, a friend of mine who's a guide and, and, and I love his, his, uh, his comeback to that. He goes, well, since you're a paying client, we're going to, uh, you know, in regards to the weight, you decide what the weight is and I'll go with that. But is, is, is there like a rule of thumb um, to, to determine the weight of a fish? 
So there's a formula, and you can find it online. I don't remember it off the top of my head for kings, but there's a formula. This times that divided by this, and you, with the weight, or excuse me, with the length and the girth measurement of the fish, you get an approximate weight within a couple pounds generally. Right. And so I always, especially, you know, bigger fish, I'm pretty good at estimating and people, you know, I, like I said, I stress to the clients, we need to be as brief as possible with this thing. I like to make my interactions a couple minutes. If I can keep it under two minutes, that's great. Some fish mm -hmm. you have to stick in the water with longer because whatever reason, I mean, the fish was really big. It fought really hard. Even some of the 25, 30 pounders are really scrappy. And sometimes they're exhausted when you get them to shore and, and, and get the pictures with them. So you have to literally sit in the water with them five minutes and make sure they swim away. Um, mm -hmm. That's another thing people don't really do a lot. I notice is they're quick to release that fish. If it barely kicks off, they're letting it go and, and it swims, you know, a couple feet away from them and then starts to drift back downstream. That's a sign to me that that fish is not fully revived. So I'm looking for a strong kickoff when I let them go. But uh, I always have one of those soft, I don't know what they're, they're uh, tailors tape measures, I guess you'd say, the ones that you can roll up that are soft, that go up to 60 inches. I always right. have one of those tape measures handy on the boat. So, um, you know, you just jump out, you get as best as you can, you get a length and you go around the middle of the fish for a girth. Mm -hmm. and that also gives it you know some clients want that measurement anyway for the opportunity to possible re replica mount so right. you usually need that and a few side pictures you know but all of that's possible without you know hurting the fish or taking yeah. it too far yeah something to touch on too real quick on the catch and release <clears throat> that i have seen people do um you know is when you are actually fighting that fish and let's say it's catch and release that doesn't mean loosen your drag, enjoy that fish, and fight it for five minutes. That means, I'm not saying necessarily tighten the drag down and try and rip the lip off the fish and drag it in either, but fight using that rod, loading that rod, using that drag appropriately, and fighting that fish um, aggressively so you can get that fish in, net that fish, and revive that fish for the right amount of time and let it go properly. You fight that fish too long, especially a, a, a hot, you know, silver or a tidal king, there's a good chance, even though hey, you sit there reviving, you, you watch it swim off, does not mean that fish just swam off and is going upriver. That's true. That's something else I'd like to touch on. So for people out there listening or following, don't sit there and fight that fish for five, ten minutes and kill that fish either. Well, and, and the other thing that, that people have to understand, I believe, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that you know you're catching fish that are pre-spawn, and any of the any of the fish that, that you kill in this process, they don't have the chance to go up and, and replenish the the runs for the next year. And with you know 200 boats on the river, you know holy smokes, that can make a huge difference in in regards to you know the the return of of, of, of the salmon runs for years to come if uh, if they're not doing this right. Very true. Very true. So, so Brian, Brian, give me, give me just a little perspective of, of what's the difference in the salmon fishing up on the peninsula in Alaska versus salmon fishing on the sack in California. <laughs> oh man, there's no, there's no comparison. Matter of fact, uh, little Brian and I and my other son Nathaniel and my up and comer boy Hunter, who wants to be a guide too. We focus a little bit more on stillhead and trout because it is really tough to both catch an Alaskan tidal king and compare it to a Sacramento king, which is a little more blush, a little more colored up fish. Right. And it's the same goes for eating it. I mean, once you've eaten halibut in Alaska or the salmon, any of the salmon in Alaska, you pretty much struggle to come back here and buy any salmon or catch your own salmon and, and, and eat them here. It's, yep. it's pretty tough. So, so there's really no comparison other than um, they, these, these uh, Sacramento fish that we have on the Sacramento River and the Klamath and the, and the Trinity also, um, they do fight um, and they are fun and it is a great fishery um, to have in my backyard, 
but we really enjoy the fly fishing of the trout and the stillhead because mm-hmm. the upper stack coming out of Keswick and Shasta is actually, I think it's by Trouts Unlimited. I know for sure the, the we have a pretty famous fly shop. It's considered uh, in the top four tailwater uh, trout fisheries in the whole U.S. Uh-huh. So we focus our efforts mostly on the trout and stillhead here. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's, well, it's, it's, we get... It's you get spoiled up in Alaska, and then it's you know it's tough to be as excited when you come down here uh, for the Chinook down here. Isn't that the truth? My 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 first trip to Alaska was in 1987, and I grew up in in Oregon on the McKinsey River fishing salmon and steelhead and trout. And I came back in 1987 after spending about three weeks on Prince of Wales Island. At that time, I'm going. Holy smokes! You know this is a lot of work to <laughs> one fish down here compared to up there. But uh, you know, I'd be I'd be amiss if we didn't have just a quick discussion on the uh, trophy rainbow trout that you can catch up in in your part of the world up there on the Kenai Peninsula. Um, it and that's a different type of fishing altogether. And and that is all catch and release, isn't it? That is correct. All the rain. Okay, so no, I'm I'm wrong. I'm programmed myself basically to say yes, that's correct. So they do have they do have it legal where you can keep a rainbow trout on the Kenai 16 inches or less. So most about 99% of the guides that you're gonna find are gonna automatically tell their clients that they're not keeping any trout. We just we advise strongly against it. A 16-inch trout, you know, just weighs a couple pounds. And most of the season, we'll say, hey, look, if you're looking for a fish for dinner, we can pull over and do some type of salmon fishing. Mm -hmm. Um, Especially in the fall, there's sockeye salmon and silver salmon in the river pretty plentifully. One fish is not hard to come by um, to save a trout from becoming dinner. So a lot of the trout fishing, what it's based on here on the Kenai is – salmon spawn everything revolves around the salmon so if we didn't have the salmon we wouldn't have the trophy trout fishery that we have the salmon come in and they start to spawn they're laying these their eggs and these trout are all over them and that's what you know happens in the fall around august september is when spawn from the sockeye and the silver or excuse me the sockeye and the king starts to happen and uh these trout come from everywhere to select parts of the river wherever the salmon are stacked up spawning and it's like they just all caution to the wind they'll hit anything that looks like one of those salmon eggs so basically you know the task on any given day is figuring out it's kind of like match the hatch except with salmon eggs you right you know on a pink ear on any given pink ear you can find a bend in the river where the water's you know pushing into the bend and the eggs are getting pushed on the shore and you can see thousands and sometimes it seems like millions of eggs you know on the bank right there where they're getting pushed up they're just dead eggs and you try and match that color with your bead usually you're fishing under an indicator when this is going on Mm -hmm. and uh as long as you're fishing or anywhere close to where salmon are spawning you're going to find trout and these rainbows can you know like I said, you're only allowed to keep one under 16 inches per day, but these fish, you know, on average are anywhere from 20 to 30 inches being, you know, the more sought after the 30 plus inches. But I, I mean, I've seen myself personally, I've seen a fish, you know, in the 33 inch range, but I, I know of lots of guys that have caught them 36, 37 and all the way up to 40 inches on the Kenai river um, is not unheard of. So there are some massive, massive rainbow trout to be caught in the Kenai and you know since we've been having the problems with the king fishing the last 10 years things seem to have been in a lower cycle it seems like our trout fishing has slowly started to go downhill a little bit too um while we still have numbers there seems to be less and less of those big ones around and I don't know if that's you know just one of the cycles too if a lot of the big ones just kind of reach their max capacity for age and have died off or what but uh you know generally 20 to 26 inch trout are a common everyday during the fall mm-hmm. okay. and and anyone can expect even on a slow day 20 fish per person is an everyday event all the way up to you know some guys catch 100 fish a day per person um 
Dolly Varden are in there too. There's a lot of dollies, so that breaks up the day. I mean, some days you're catching more dollies than rainbows, and they're in there doing the same thing. They're all eating the salmon spawn. Right. So the third element, which not, just here, I think five, six years ago, fishing game had, was still denying that they were in the river, in the Kenai, are the steelhead that are now making quite a – I assume they've always been there. Um, and they've just been confused with rainbow trout. When you have rainbow trout in the river that are 30 inches long, it's not hard to uh, misjudge all the 30-inch rainbow-looking fish for rainbows, right? I mean, if you, if you think there's no, no steelhead in there, um, then they're all just big rainbows. But steelhead have been making quite a comeback on the Kenai, and they show up around, starting around, you know, the first, second week of August all the way through till December, and they're in there. Uh, they're, they come in in the fall and they don't spawn until due in April and May of the following year. Mm -hmm. So they come in and they spend the entire winter just hanging out. And, you know, I don't think they're aggressive feeders, but you catch them a lot around spawning salmon the same way you do the rainbows and the dollies. So they're obviously, you know, feeding when it's, when it's opportunistic, but, uh, yeah, that, so those are the main things that you got going on fly fishing in the Kenai. There's also, you know, a few other fish like whitefish, um, which aren't exactly common. You know, you catch them occasionally bead fishing and then very rare over there on the Kenai. But I haven't personally caught one, but I've been there when one was hooked are grayling. Um, mm -hmm. Generally, you find those. But there are there is a small population of, of those in there as well. Right, right. And, and, and they're not a very big fish, are they? I mean, they get to a couple of no. pounds, something like that, right? Yeah, I mean, and that's a pretty good one. Um, the one yeah. that that I caught out of there was probably 12 inches. And like I said, I've been fishing the Kenai for like 20 years, and that's the only one I've ever seen caught. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, I've seen a couple other pictures. So the population of grilling, and there's got to be tiny, but it's a big river. There's a lot of places for them to hide, and there are smaller yeah. fish with a small mouth. So I'm sure. Right bead fishing now, now brian you, you go up there and, and and fish some of the trophy rainbow don't you yeah little brian and i both uh do but it, it's more personal fishing i actually am trying to make that transition right now being 55 years old uh and trying to back troll all day on the kasilov and i refuse to run a motor on the kenai uh, little Brian and I have uh, a couple newly built NRS 14-foot uh, fly fishing rafts. Um, oh, wow. I was I was thinking about taking uh, one of those up with us to Alaska this year if I could uh, make the transition to Cooper's Landing, which is up on the Kenai also, right? Um, and do more fly fishing. Uh, the issue there's 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 financial issues that come with it uh, when you're when you're working for an outfitter or even by yourself, uh, you know, your your clients on the boat are paying anywhere from 175 to 300 a seat for mm -hmm. the most part. Um, and you're also relying a lot on your gratuities when you've got four, four people on your boat. And then there's another little element there that uh, I think the P the Kenai permit right now for yourself is $1,700. And to make that transition, although easier rowing uh, and you only use, you only have two people, one on the front, one on the back, $1,700 permit, two less people getting gratuity. So you take a huge financial cut in in guiding that um but it's something that i'm i'm i've contacted felix has put me in touch with a couple guys little brian has put me in touch with a couple guys and i'm just kind of testing the waters to see if i want to go up there and guide that and, and tow one of the rafts up there this year if not i'm going to see if i can just you know take the the pickings that are left over in june and july when they're struggling to find when they're overbooking and they don't, there's no more guides left. I might just take that two day a week or three day a week uh, back troll down the Kasilov. Mm -hmm. But the goal is to really end up in Cooper's Landing on the Kenai up there. So we haven't guided it, but we've fished it, and uh, it is it is pretty amazing. Little Nathaniel, I think the, my my 
one son, uh, he actually caught a 30 inch uh, bow out of there, up there, out of the uh, Cooper's Landing, and it was just a phenom of a fish. Pound for pound, there is uh, not many fish that can fight like a trout. Yeah, the, the steelhead, especially in the I, any of the salmonid family, really, and and then just top it off when you get it really more in the the, the tidal waters. Uh huh. Um, man, it's phenomenal. And then you, with us, you add the element of a fly rod. Uh, you know, it, it'll just ruin you. You oh, know, oh, it's just tough. To, it's now, tough to now, guide on conventional gear after you've been fly fishing, you know, for so long. That, but right. I, I, it still is fun on the conventional with those silvers and them Chinooks. So sure. Now, now Felix was talking uh, about mac, uh, uh, matching beads to uh, the the eggs that he finds along the the bank and uh, the rivers and that sort of thing. My experience with fishing for the big rainbow, though, is that we were using like flesh flies and bunnies and that sort of thing. Does that work up there too? Definitely, definitely. So after the first waves of food start to spawn, and especially during when the main sockeye harvest is going on in river, flesh mm -hmm. flies can be an awesome presentation to get your big um, to keep them, you know, carcasses floating down the river constantly. Once the right. fish... But you're just asking about the bead color and something yeah. that wasn't new to me. Um, was you know figuring out what color beads to throw and that kind of stuff and uh some of the best seasons they have on the Kenai for chasing rainbows and steelhead are when the pinks come in because those pinks spawn huge um light you know pearl colored eggs and that's what most guys that are catching the big bows are throwing oh no kidding and so that's what oh, i was good talking point. about but yeah, yeah sorry guys, I got I was having phone issues there. I got booted twice. Oh, not not a problem. I mean, I'm glad you made it back in, Felix. Uh, uh, little Brian, just a, a question on that. So, uh, pinks are only running every other year, right? And so, what are you Correct. doing the other year? So that's you're still throwing beads, but you're throwing I, sometimes a lot smaller size for the sockeyes, or you're you're starting to throw a color more like a king egg um, uh -huh. color set of those pink eggs and when those pinks in there they are throw I mean they're spitting so many eggs down the river um it's crazy I I've never seen so many eggs and so many fish in a river until mm -hmm. I uh I got to you know actually see that on the middle river this year when I was chasing uh trout up there right right you know we started the the uh the podcast and and I think uh, Big Brian you were talking about you know people that would come to the Kenai and could walk across the river on fish well, when the pinks were on, that that's almost what it's like, isn't it? Yes, it is. Yeah. 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 Crazy. Now, now, Felix, you were talking a little about the flesh flies and bunnies and that sort of thing. Can Can you expand on that? Yeah. So when the fish start to die off, especially on those years when the pinks aren't around, flesh flies become a lot more prevalent. Um, myself, I don't use a ton of flesh flies. I prefer the bead. Um, but a lot of guys, a lot of really larger fish are prone to bite the flesh fly. So as opposed to going down the river with the bead and say, you know, you, you catch 40 fish to yourself that day, you interact with 40 trout, you might go down that same portion of river and only hook a half dozen to a dozen fish, but they're all going to be bigger fish generally. Um, mm -hmm. You use a thick flesh fly and you're not going to catch very many fish under 20 inches. You know what I mean? Right, right. Yeah, but it, at the end of the day, everything in the river eats the egg. Um, so the bead is is the go-to until there's no more fish in the river spawning. Like in wintertime, for instance, like this time of the year, uh, there you could go out to the Kenai right now, and there are still silver salmon in there from September and October, mainly males. Um, that are guarding spawning beds, but there's no new eggs basically put, being put into the gravel. So this would be a time where, for instance, we'd be using like uh, sculpin patterns or leeches out there because oh, this yeah. is this is a time also when flesh flies would be good because there's still a few dying salmon males mainly on those coho that are guarding beds drifting down the river and, and decomposing and breaking up. 
And, uh, you know, these trout only have a few options for food right now. It's either salmon flesh, salmon fry that has been in the river already. And then mm-hmm. soon it'll emerging salmon out of the gravel that are going from alvin to fry form before, you know, and then they spend their year or whatever in, in fresh water before they smultify and go out to the ocean. You bet. You bet. Well, gosh, guys, this has been a tremendous conversation. I uh, want to thank you all for um, jumping on the line and, and bestowing your knowledge, not only of the sport, but uh, the interaction of, uh, of you, you people in your profession on the river and that sort of thing. And, and I'd uh, like to give you an opportunity just to uh, let our listeners know how they can reach you and, and uh, what, what sort of uh, fishing that you do in, in not only the uh, Alaska, but in other parts of the U.S. And uh, again, how they can reach you on this. So uh, Brian and Brian, I'll let you guys start it off. All right, well, once again, we're uh, the Kinsey Guide Service based out of Northern California, and then we go up and we sub out of the Kenai Peninsula. And uh, little Brian also runs remote trips, and he'll go out of Bethel also. And he's also, believe it or not, looking at getting his big game guide license and dangerous uh, game up in Alaska. Uh, We're a full-service guide service that can be reached out of Northern California at Five three zero five two four eight five three five, and we do turkey, wild hogs, bear, deer, elk, uh, Idaho mountain lions uh, with with dogs. Um, but our specialty uh, with the boys here in Northern California is fly fishing the rivers here, and then conventional gear uh, for the salmon up on the Kenai Peninsula. And, and if I might highlight something, uh, a lot of people don't realize what a incredible fishery that you have there on the Sacramento River around Redding for just beautiful trophy rainbow trout. I mean, it, uh, um, it, it's spectacular. And, and I wasn't uh, uh, attuned to it until a few years ago, but uh, I mean, you, you get what, 20 fish days there on a pretty regular basis, don't you? Oh yeah, little uh, little Brian will sometimes do twenty five, thirty. I'm the fifteen to twenty a day guy uh, with our clients, and our average fish I would say is probably eighteen to twenty two. Um, and you, I just also want to just recognize our Reading Fly Shop too. They are a competitor of mine, but man, they've done a tremendous job to promote promote this uh, river, and they are known across the world. Uh, for fly fishing, uh, but Ted, you're absolutely right. Fourth rated number four tailwater trout fisheries in the U.S. is right here in Redding, California. And and when we talk about right here in Redding, California, I mean you can see that you can see the town from where you're fishing. It's incredible, isn't it? Yeah, we have a, a landmark called the Sundial Bridge. So if you were to Google the Sundial Bridge. Uh, we literally, when our, so so we've got remote rivers that we drift down, the mm-hmm. Trinity, the Clan, where you're not going to see anybody, um, which people love that. But uh, some some folks like to come up from the Bay Area, Southern California, out of state, uh, and they'll bring their wives, and their wives will want to hang out on the bridge, uh, the Sundial Bridge and Turtle Bay and the coffee shops and all that, and it's it's just absolutely beautiful as their their husbands with us drifting down the river and these people line up on the sundial bridge which is a a see-through bridge over the top of us and as we're hooking up on big fish with our fly rods underneath and the people are cheering and and uh cheering the client on and when they land it they want to see the fish they want to make sure they land it and just the opposite if the client loses it they start booing at them and oh it's just uh, so much fun out there Oh, that sounds crazy. Now, now, Felix, um, got you. You are uh, just an avid fisherman, man, and uh, commend you for uh, sticking through the cold months up there in your part of the world to uh, be, uh, you know, uh, uh, just uh, getting a feel for where the fish are. And and it, it sounds like you think you've got this thing nailed down. How do people get a hold of you, Felix? Uh, you can look me up on the web. We have a website, landomfishing.com. 
or you can give me a call 907-598-4665. We fish for basically anything that swims in the Kenai or Kasiba. Like I said, excluding kings out of the Kenai, we fish for everything that swims in the two bodies of water. Very good. Now, I'm just curious, you guys, will you help people arrange for uh, lodging and that sort of thing if they're calling you from the lower 48 and need help with that too? Yeah, we do have um, we do have a few lodges that we recommend on a regular basis for any of the clients that call the book with us. Very good, very good. Also, with us, we offer that uh, out of www.kinseyguideservice.com, and you know, I I, I want to do give a couple plugs to two other people, Jimmy Jack Drafts, who has taken care of my boy for the last couple years. Um, is a phenomenal outfitter also and then little Brian you want to plug the uh, outfitter that you're going to work for uh, for the 2019 season yeah that's fish on charters Gary Kernan and that's uh, that's who I'll be working for this year and uh, he has lodging and everything for anyone that uh, that needs it Terrific. And little Brian's number, little Brian's number is five three zero three five six eight zero eight zero. And uh, so, if you wanna, if you wanna track down uh, either of these young men, Felix is at a landum fishing dot com, right? Or is it landum dot com, Felix? Fishing dot com. All right, and then little Brian is five three zero three five six eighty eighty. So little Brian's got the uh, Kenai covered for you, and some Keith Kasilov. And Felix has got Kasilov covered, and Felix will go all the way through to Stillhead, won't you, Felix? Yes, sir. All the way to October. Wow! Wow! Terrific. Well, guys, thank you so much. I hope your uh, two thousand and nineteen season is your absolute best ever. And, uh, you know, just uh, uh, safe times on the river and tight lines to all three of you. Thank you. Have a good night.